You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Um, But one thing specifically I wanted to talk to you about, the last time we got together, we talked about deer vision, the science behind it, how how they interact with the world, you know, how we think about vision versus how they actually see us. Um, And then you had a tweet, particularly, I think it was a couple weeks ago, talking about good genetics versus bad genetics and something I uh, living in, you know, central to South Texas, something I I encounter quite a bit is the idea of culling or taking undesirable genetics out of a deer herd that is not in an enclosed um, position. And I wanted to know, what did you mean by your tweet um, that there isn't such things as good genetics or bad genetics? And can you talk a little bit about culling? Yeah, you can talk a lot about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, what set me off that morning on that tweet, I saw, as you often do on social media and websites, you see people talking about this kind of thing, and I see it often. Uh, this is, I'm not, I'm not d- drilling down on one person. A lot of people, I see this fairly regularly. And this person happened to say, we've got good de- deer genetics where I hunt, but, and he shared a photo of a buck. He said, I'm worried this buck is inferior and do I need to remove him? There's just so much wrong with that that uh, it takes a while to unpack everything wrong with that. But the bottom line is, there really is, like I said, no such thing as good or bad genetics where you hunt deer. Genetics is not a limitation uh, when you are managing and hunting wild deer. The things, three things really make quality deer, or in particular, in this case, a quality buck. Um, Age, as they get older, they tend to grow larger antlers. We know, most of us know that. Nutrition, the more nutrition they have available, whether you are improving available nutrition or whether you're managing the numbers of deer on the landscape to maintain balance with the habitat so each individual deer has the right amount of nutrition. With nutrition, the deer, any individual deer can express its full potential, whether that's a buck, whether it's a doe producing fawns that have high survival rates. So those, and then the third thing is yes, genetics. Genetics does play that role in Uh, what a buck looks like, the types of antlers it grows, body size, and some other things. But of those three things, we can manage two of them, age and nutrition, with dramatic effects. You can see the effects of that, and you'll see it quickly. We cannot change genetics of wild deer. And that's, um, there's a lot of good science on this um, that explains why we can get into that. But the bottom line is, you're not ever going to change deer genetics locally, for better or worse, with a trigger pull, they're just not going to do it. Um, and so it, it is really something that that hunters need to, I, I've often referred to genetics as the G word, because I'd like to see hunters quit using that word. Then you don't need to, you don't need to worry about it. Um, certainly it is involved, but you cannot manage it or change it. Therefore, just forget it. Work on the things you can manage, which are age. If you want to see more uh, old and uh, adult and mature bucks with large antlers, you need to let them a few of them get some age. And nutrition, um, increasing 
uh, the available nutrition for every individual deer increases health across the population, including, you know, uh, those adult bucks that you'd like to see more of. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great overview. And I think you alluded to it a little bit that you know, we can actually get into it, like the data-driven studies that we've seen you guys kind of post and comment on. And so you wrote an article, I, I think it was last uh, in 2019 called QDM work. So quality works. So quality deer management works culling doesn't. Um, can you maybe set this story up by talking about the three culling scenarios that were used in that study? Yeah, that was an article I wrote about a, a research project that, that was unveiled or published recently about two years ago. It was an extensive long-term study on the Comanche Ranch in Texas. And this was similar to an earlier study done on the King Ranch. Uh, the earlier study also, like this one, showed, set out to show or determine whether or not culling, under the modern understanding of that, can change deer genetics and increase antler quality. The earlier King Ranch study found no, it didn't. So this was another test of this on a large scale on the Comanche Ranch, a little bit different this time in that they had some, they had DNA to look at. But to set up the study for seven years, this was a long-term study, for seven years, um, they culled bucks in two different study areas and then had a third study area called a control where conditions were similar, but they did not call bucks. They continued to measure them um, and tried to see whether they could make a difference. And that's what the article about was about, was the results of that study. Um, this was a, a joint project of Texas A&M University, uh, Dr. Charlie DeYoung, Dr. Randy DeYoung from Texas A&M, Kingsville, I should add, Texas A&M Kingsville. Um, were involved in that. And one of their students, Masa Onishi, who's now earned his PhD through this study. And also Dr. Brunson Strickland from Mississippi State University. So you had multiple universities collaborating with the Comanche Ranch uh, to do this study. It was intensive, involved a lot of people over a lot of years. They set up three study areas on the Comanche Ranch. One, as I mentioned, was the, and, and all three of these study areas were close to each other and similar in all regards, whether it was habitat, herd structure, uh, herd demographics, nutrition, everything was similar. These are three very similar areas. Um, they took one and they called it the intensive culling area. In other words, they really wanted to uh, hammer down on bucks traditionally considered the bucks you want to remove. Then the second one they called the moderate culling area, and it was a little less, uh, it was moderate as you would, would think, not as intensive as the other one. Um, and then there was a, a third area they called a control. And the control is something you need in every scientific study. It's the area that's, that controls for all the other factors that might be involved in, this, in what you're studying. And on that control area, they didn't do anything. So that, in terms of culling, that served as sort of the control area for a comparison to show whether or not what you were doing on the other two made any difference. Um, so to give you a sense of what they meant by those criteria, let me just explain what intensive culling meant. And I'm, gonna, I'm reading from the article to make sure I get this right. In the intensive area, which was 3,500 acres, they culled out yearlings with less than six antler points, so that's spikes and four-pointers, two-and-a-half-year-olds with less than eight antler points, three- to four-year-olds with less than nine points, and all bucks five and a half or older that grossed less than 145 inches Boone and Crockett. They were culled. In the moderate area, which was 18,000 acres, uh, 
it was essentially the same, except they didn't mess with yearlings and two-year-olds. They left them alone. They only called three and four and five, five plus. So again, in the from three to four, it was all bucks less than nine points total were called out. And five and a half or older, again, any buck with less than a growth score of 145 inches was called. And for seven years. Now, this was not done by recreational hunters. This was done by scientists using scientific research permits from the state. They were capturing bucks with a helicopter and a net gun, as you are probably familiar with being from Texas. You know, in the brush country, you can do this. It's open country. You can fly around the helicopter and, and shoot a net out over bucks and capture them. Mm -hmm. So very efficient method for going through these areas and, and capturing the bucks live. They would look at tooth, tooth wear and estimate an age. They'd measure the antlers. Um, they would tag them so they could identify them later. They would insert a, a pit tag under the skin that could be read later with a scanner, and they'd collect DNA material. Um, any buck they captured in the two culling areas that met the criteria for that area was sacrificed. Any buck that didn't was released. Now on the control area, they captured bucks as well with net guns and helicopters, collected all that data, but every single one was released. So that's how the test was set up. Um, so they did this for seven years and we can jump on into the results if you wanna hear how that went. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I just asked, this is so interesting to me because um, I have people, especially being from the central part of Texas where um, they shoot spikes and four points and that's a, uh, that's a way to cull a undesirable genetic out of a place. and. I've actually seen some people that do, they are involved in QDMA and they practice QDM in, in Southern Oklahoma that actually harvest a ton of mature deer. And that's their focus is shooting mature deer. And they don't shoot deer that they call a cull until it would be mature. So they don't even cull it until it's mature. So really they're just shooting a, a uh, you know, a mature buck, but yeah, I want to dig into the results of that survey and, you know, tell us what, what did the data and what did the long-term survey actually tell us about how culling works and how it affects antler genetics? You know, the best way to sum up the results is Donnie Drager is the wildlife manager at the Comanche Ranch, which if you're familiar with, this is a very large private ranch, uh, very well run. They spend a lot of money on research. They're very engaged with Texas A&M Kingsville and doing scientific studies out there at the Comanche Ranch. A uh, very big operation that Donnie runs there. Prior to this study, Donnie uh, conducted culling on the Comanche Ranch. They recommended it. They practiced it. They thought it worked. And Di Donnie is a wildlife biologist. When he finished this study and looked at the results, he said he will not recommend culling again. It's a waste of time and money on the ranch. So that right there to me tells you a, a lifetime uh, scientist here, wildlife biologist who runs a large private uh, ranch in Texas, uh, that is very serious about deer management, completely changed his mind about whether he needed to waste his time on culling or not. He won't anymore. So that sort of sums it up. The bottom line was it didn't work. It did not work. It did not make a difference. And when you look at the three different areas, what it did in the intensive area was actually cause a lot more problems. Um, the way Donnie explained it, with those intensive criteria, you know, culling yearlings with uh, spikes and four pointers and then culling uh, at the two and a half, three, and uh, culling at every age class, they were taking out almost 90% most years of their yearling bucks that met that criteria. Um, so essentially it was a, a wipeout of the buck uh, population in that area. And what happened was even though the bucks that remained were very large antler bucks, there were so few of them 
they could not breed all the does when the rut came around. And so most does weren't bred on their first cycle and they ended up being bred the second or even third time. That led to late born fawns, which leads to nutritional problems for those fawns because they're late born, they're, they have a setback. And that leads to ultimately what they found, which was fawns that had quality antler genetics didn't perform well because they, they were born late, poor nutrition, trying to catch up their whole life it essentially became a, a, you know, a black hole of problems by shooting that many bucks in that area. It just completely, you know, almost crashed the buck population. So they got into this uh, repeating cycle of bucks just underperforming because they were born late and that, you know, they just couldn't overcome that. So, so clearly the intensive didn't work. But look at the moderate, which again, didn't touch yearlings and two-year-olds. They only called threes, fours, and five up. And what they found there was no difference between the moderate and the control area at the end of seven years. No difference in the antler quality of the standing crop of bucks at the end of seven years. Now, if what you're doing with that culling they're doing is making a difference in genetics, you would expect that each year you'd need to cull fewer bucks, right? A, a smaller percentage of the bucks that you capture and study out there would need to be culled because you're, you're theoretically improving antler quality of the bucks that are out there through removing the ones that are below average. It didn't happen. Not only were they continually every year finding the same rate of bucks needing to be culled out of the bucks they were capturing, but at the end of the, the whole thing, there was no difference with the control area where they were doing no culling. Now, the interesting thing that, that like I said, with this study, the thing they had that the King Ranch study didn't have was DNA collecting DNA from all these bucks. They were able to build a family tree of brothers, fathers, sons of all these bucks involved almost a thousand individual deer. And they paired that with what they knew about their antler score. They, they connected them up to who was whose daddy and all of this. And it comes down to this. There was no connection between antler size and a buck's ability to produce large antlered offspring. That really sums it up. If you cannot look at a buck's antlers and determine his contribution to the future antler quality of deer, you can't cull, period. You just can't do it. So literally what they were finding was they found large antler bucks that did not meet cull criteria, the kind of above average buck you'd want out there mm -hmm. that produced offspring that were below average, offspring that were cull bucks. And the reverse, they found below average antler quality bucks that were producing offspring that ended up having high quality antlers. So if, if it doesn't work that way, which is what most hunters believe, you know, they think, okay, I'm looking at a buck with what I think is below average antlers for his age, get him out of the gene pool. If that doesn't have any connection whatsoever to the offspring that buck is producing, that's why you can't make a difference. This is why we can't manage genetics. And that really was the key to what Donnie said. If you can't look at antlers and determine what bucks need to be culled from a genetic standpoint, what are you going to do? You can't look. There's nothing else to look at. We can't cull does because they don't carry antlers. There's nothing to look at on the doe. And does also contribute to the antler genetic ant formula for antler quality. You know, probably at least half of the genetics of antlers come from the doe side. You can't cull them. So this really was where Donnie landed and said, look, we've, we've been mistaken all along. You can't look at the antlers a buck has and, and determine what the future contribution of that buck is to the population. Even when he's got large antlers and you think, boy, I want him out there breeding more does. Yeah. It may not 
that may not be that, you know, they were certainly they did find high quality antlered bucks that were producing high quality offspring, but they were so few of those that if there was any way you could identify them, which you can't, but if there was some magical way to identify them and cull down to those deer, you'd have so few bucks out there that again, you'd be getting into this problem of not breeding the does on time, getting into the cycle of late born fawns. It's not the way you wanna go. So again, we come back to what we've always understood. You can manage age, protect most of your yearlings if you can, let them get some age on them. You can manage nutrition plant food plots, manage the forest for, for, for better forage and, and cover out there, use prescribed fire. Uh, there's other techniques to increase the nutritional level. Manage your, your does when you need to. If there's too many deer on the landscape, take some does to reduce that density. That also increases, increases nutrition available to each individual deer. Those things, managing age and nutrition, we can do and have quick results. You know, Donnie pointed to another study by Texas A&M Kingsville that, that found that um, when you manage nutrition, you can have as much as a 15 inch impact in, on the, uh, for, for a mature five and a half year old and older buck in a single year on, for the average buck. 15 inches of antler difference simply from managing nutrition. Wow. But in seven years, they could make zero difference in antler quality simply through culling. It just didn't work. Yeah, I will. I think I think we're stepping on some toes here, saying that uh, you know that the uh, big rack deer isn't necessarily an indicator of the offspring of the deer, which I think is in the whitetail hunting community is exactly what it, almost everyone thinks. Because you know you see you see people, I'm going to let him go, and hopefully he'll breed some does, and there'll be some deer with his genetics, you know, running around here for years to come. It's and, it's very seductive and simple logic. You know, we're familiar with dogs that are bred you know it, it pretty short time in human history it took us to take a wolf and turn it into a chihuahua mm -hmm. um, through controlled breeding the key there is control if you own cattle and you're breeding certain cattle to, to achieve a certain breed um, dogs whatever whatever it is crops you know we, we we've created corn out of a seedy grass called maize you know, but it's controlled breeding that produce those things. And control means you know exactly who's breeding who. With wild deer, we don't have that control. You cannot control who's breeding who. So many things affect or prevent you from having that kind of control. There's yearling buck dispersal. 75% or more of most yearling bucks leave their birth range at a year and a half of age and go one to five miles or more on average, sometimes 30 miles and set up an adult home range. So that's taking genetics out of that area and moving it somewhere else. It's bringing in genetics from another area to your area every single year. There's excursions by adult bucks during the rut and even does that we now know make excursions from their established home range. Maybe leave 24 hours, go a few miles outside their home range, hook up with a doe, come back home. You know, that also is distributing and bringing in genetics from outside. You know, there's the other fact that a, a lot of bucks of different ages do the breeding. We found that yearlings and two-year-olds do a lot more breeding than we thought they did. Even when four and five-year-olds are in the population, they don't dominate the breeding. So breeding is distributed among a lot of bucks. And because of that, we've also, also found that the lifetime productivity of any given buck is relatively low. Any given buck is going to breed and produce relatively few fawns in his lifetime because no one, you know, whitetails don't operate that way. No buck dominates the breeding. They don't have harems. They don't prevent other bucks from breeding. And, and, and an individual buck simply can't breed enough does with given the competition from other bucks, you know, 
to, to dominate farm production like that. So for all these reasons, um, and now we know from Donnie's DNA study that antlers don't connect. For all these reasons, we, you just can't control who breeds who on the landscape when you hunt wild deer and change genetics. It just doesn't work. Uh, so you're better off spending your time. Look, let these bucks get some age. One, two, three-year-olds. If you're trying to produce more adults, you know, let a few of them go. Let them become older. Now, some people want to say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm calling four and five-year-olds with lower antlers. And I'm going, why? What's the point? Those bucks are mature. They're adults. They're very mature deer. Take them and treasure that jawbone, regardless of the antler score. He's, this is the product you're going for. You're trying to produce adult or fully mature bucks. There he is. He's a crop ready for harvest. That's not, you know, he's not a cull buck. He's a buck you should enjoy because you're out there hunting that deer. And when you, when you kill a buck that's made it four or five seasons or more out there under pressure from other hunters, that's an achievement. I don't care what he's carrying on his head. So we need to get folks to appreciate that and, and just not worry about genetics because you can't, you can't manage it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one, one thing to, to touch on that I really want you to, uh, to dive in depth to is, can you talk about how in this study, the 123 inch gross, not net gross buck produced the best breeding value or in turn the largest antlered offspring um, during this study? Yeah. Uh, like I said, they had D DNA and family trees with hundreds of bucks, and they found examples of large antlered bucks that were poor. Uh, they called it breeding value, and that was their term for the offspring quality of that buck. Was their offspring, sons and grandsons and on down the line, did they have above average antler quality? So a buck with high breeding value produced high quality offspring. They found bucks with small antlers that had high breeding value and bucks with l large antlers that had low breeding value. And yeah, the, the number one, I think um, as Donnie, and I had the picture of the buck in my article, um, he had the highest breeding value of any buck they, they, they studied. Um, they captured him five times from one and a half to eight and a half years of age. Now I'll point out when they captured him at one and a half and they looked at his teeth, when you estimate the age of a fawn or yearling by the teeth, the tooth wear, the tooth replacement patterns give you 100% accuracy on those ages. In other words, if you look at a yearling from the tooth replacement, you can 100% spot a yearling in a, in a fawn. So if they captured his buck as a yearling, they knew exactly that he was one and a half. Therefore, because they tagged him and could identify him later, when they caught him at eight and a half, they knew exactly that he was eight and a half. Mm -hmm. And so at eight and a half, um, and throughout, actually at age six and a half, when they caught him, he was, like you said, 123 gross antler inches. This was the buck that had the highest breeding value of any deer out of hundreds in the study uh, for producing high quality fawns. And most people would have looked at him under their criteria. By the way, he was in the control area, therefore he didn't get called out. He would have been called in the other areas. Um, so that, you know, just a great example there of a buck, many, some hunters who have different culling regimens they follow would have looked at this deer and said, 123 gross, you know, an adult bug, mature, he's not going to produce what we want. We want him out of the gene, gene pool, get him. And yet this is the very buck, if you could have known it, the very buck you would have wanted out there breeding does and producing more offspring because his offspring did have high quality antlers. It just goes to show how weird a thing genetics is. It is so complicated. So many things go into it that you just can't control it. Unless, like I said, you've got an animal in a pen and you can determine yourself or a plant 
you can determine exactly which individuals breed with which other individuals to produce offspring, then you can make changes, but we don't do that with wild deer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And can you, I think you touched on it just uh, briefly earlier, but you know, when we're talking about control groups and can't control which buck breeds with what doe, what does the, what does the doe um, bring to the table here? Obviously, because if it, if the doe is 50% of the genetics, you know, you could have a very high quality antlered buck breed a doe with maybe inferior genetics and then produce a non, you know, a non trophy per se um, buck. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that's, that's simply the wild card that's out there. We don't know the types of genetics that the does carry. Like we said, they contribute at least half, if not more, of the genes. You know, it's going to, the way genetics, again, the way it works, you know, when, when two animals get together, it could end up being that the animal quality reflects the buck more than the doe, um, or the doe more than the buck in that individual case. But across the average, the doe contributes, you know, it's going to meet in the middle. They contribute half, sometimes more, of the antigenetics. And you can't look at her and tell what she's, you know, what genes she inherited regarding antlers. So, um, you know, that's just another reason why uh, you don't have any control over this and, and, you know, really can't do anything about affecting genetics. Yeah. So I think in the intensive, um, in the intensive culling era, you talked about how they shot, um, you know, one and a half year olds that were less that were spikes in four points and then three and a half year olds less than eight points and how that kind of decimated the buck population. What did that do in terms of a buck to doe ratio and how did that affect, um, you know, the ability to breed? I, I want to dig into that just a little bit more. Yeah. So all the three study areas started out with a one-to-one -one buck doe ratio, which is, you know, that's good. Most of us hunting wild deer don't need to worry about getting to a one-one. You, you certainly want to take uh, on usually most years take more does than bucks so that you are on average, you know, keeping a roughly balanced sex ratio out there. When your sex ratio is balanced, that's when we see more of the rut behaviors and, and bucks are more visible and chasing and all that. Um, so all three of these areas were under a very balanced one-to-one -one buck to doe ratio. In the intensive area, as Donnie pointed out, they were taking out so many bucks with the culling. By the time it was over, it was a one-to-six buck to doe ratio. One buck, for every six does. And that's how we were getting into that feedback loop of late fawn birth dates. The way that works is a doe comes into estrus during the peak of the breeding season. Um, if she's bred, you know, good. If she's not, she will cycle again 30 days later and sometimes even 30 days later. When you have an extreme buck doe ratio like that, one to six, with so few bucks relative to the number of does out there, many does are not bred on their first cycle. There's just not enough bucks to get around and service them and breed them. It just doesn't happen. Um, they're busy getting around as much as they can and does are coming to them, but in the end, they miss some. And some cycle 30 days later, they're getting bred then, some even later. So what happens is your fawn birth dates scatter out across the calendar. Instead of most all, most all of your fawns being born right in the ideal window nutritionally in spring when, when forage is at the highest quality um, for the milk and for the fawn to wean on. These fawns are being born later and later into the summer and even the fall when forage quality is lower, the milk quality is going to be lower, cover is less and their survival is survival rates go down because their nutrition is less. But those, those late born fawns that survive simply start out lagging behind all the others. They start out from a uh, you know, poor nutritional 
uh, foundation, and it's just tough for them to recover from that. As Donnie said, many of these farms had high quality antler genetics, mm -hmm. but because they were being born late, you know, the, it's a setback. It is something they, they have to recover from and struggle to recover from. But each year, more and more fawns were being born late because they were continuing to hammer the bucks, keeping that buck to doe ratio um, tilted toward does. And it just, the population can't recover from that as long as you keep up that heavy harvest on bucks. You know, this literally was taking them back to what um, the problems we used to see across the nation that, that explained why QDMA was formed to begin with, which was to tell hunters, look, sometimes you need to take the pressure off the bucks and take a few does because we were in that old traditional model of shoot the first antler that comes along that's legal, don't ever harvest a doe, and those were leading to skewed populations with a lot of does and very few bucks out there, and it was the same problem. So they were taking us back in time to a traditional management method that just does not work when you're trying to produce a healthy, balanced deer population. And could you attribute, you know, in the, in the fall, sometimes you see, um, you know, fawns with very distinct spots. I feel like when I see most of them, they don't, you know, they're kind of weaning out of the spots and they're turning into like a, a nice brown coat. But those, for those fawns that have really distinct spots early in the fall when we start hunting, are those typically late, you know, late blooms or late drops? Yeah, probably are. You know, I mean, the fawn drop isn't always a tight window. I mean, it does scatter out just like the rut. You're going to have some early bred does and some late bred does. As long as, you know, there's a bell curve, as long as the middle of that bell curve, the average, most fawns drop, you know, during the right window, you're going to be fine. So sometimes, yeah, you're going to see in fall um, some, some fawns walk around with spots, but that's generally unusual. And, you know, mostly what you're seeing are button bucks, which are fawns born the same year that were born on time. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as the majority are born during the ideal window and bred during the ideal window, you're going to be fine. It's just when you start getting more and more does breeding 30 days late, that bell curve starts to flatten out and spread out over time. And, and that's what you don't want. The other thing about that from a predator standpoint, when most fawns are born during a very tight, narrow window, you get what's called predator satiation, which means that they can only eat so many fawns in a short period of time. And that reduces the number of fawns actually that are eaten by predators. When fawns spread out across the calendar, um, generally predators are, can take more of them as a percentage of your fawn crop. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of reasons why you want a tight rut and you want a tight fawn drop. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. So wrapping up here, we've talked about culling. You know, we've disproved the significance of culling with data, with actual long-term research studies. And so the second part of that article, or actually the first half, was why QDM works. Can you touch on, you know, maybe the, th the three or four pillars that we need to be focusing on, you know, as stewards, as deer managers, to make sure that we're practicing good quality M or QDM if we're, uh, we're going to move away from this idea of culling? Yeah, um, really, it just comes back to, you know, what I said before about age and nutrition. Those are the two things you can manage with extreme results. Um, if you are not seeing enough adult bucks in there, you'd like to see more adult bucks. You'd like to see more rut behaviors that come with having a balanced age structure out there. You know, look at your, at your buck harvest. Are you, are you taking uh, bucks that are one and two and a lot of those? Just start letting a few of those one-year-olds go. If you can let most, you don't even have to stop completely killing yearlings. Mm -hmm. You got some young hunters or new hunters and, and a yearling would make them happy and it's legal where you hunt. That's fine as long as most of the yearlings are making it through. 
they're going to become two. They're a little smarter. They're a little wiser. Um, they're not all going to get harvested, and some of them are going to make it through to three and four, and that's how over time you quickly build up numbers of your adult bucks. As they get older, they're carrying larger antlers. Um, you know, we know that a three and a half year old buck is generally expressing about 80% of his lifetime antler potential. So very quickly from a yearling to two year old to three, you know, that antler size has jumped on up there very, very high. And you, you know, immediately you're seeing more large antlered bucks out there. You didn't, you didn't call anything. You just started letting some bucks get older. And the second part of that is nutrition. Nutrition is a big part of antler growth. Bucks, to grow antlers, they mobilize minerals from their skeletal system to produce antlers. So the healthier they are, uh, the more minerals in, the, in that system, the, the, the healthier they are physically, the larger antlers they can grow. Um, this is another fact that we know. So if you can increase the amount of forages out there year round, whether that is food plots, whether that is increasing natural forage, there's techniques for that for forest management, that ways that produce natural forage that are out there. Using prescribed fire, using other techniques. You know, supplemental feeding is another one, but it shouldn't be, you don't need to put all of your money in the supplemental feeding barrel. That can simply fill in some of the gaps. You need to also be looking at habitat uh, and improving that. And then on the doe side, if deer density is a little high where you hunt, let's say you can see a browse line in the forest where there's nothing green from about your neck down to the ground because the deer have eaten it all. Or let's say you can't grow a food plot because the deer wipe it out within weeks. You know, if you put a browse cage on your food plots and it's full of forage and there's nothing but dirt outside of it, that's a problem. You don't have enough food. Um, so there's indicators out there. If you, you know, when you look at some of the highest uh, preferred deer forages out there, if all of them are heavily browsed by deer, Again, that's a sign you don't have enough food for the number of deer out there. You can increase food on one side of that seesaw and you can bring down the numbers of deer on the other side and that means taking a few does. Uh, taking a few does is how you leverage deer density and bring that down a little bit, reducing a few mouths off the landscape. So uh, that's really it, QDM. You know, looking at, um, as we've often said, that doesn't mean everybody has to shoot a lot of does. Mm -hmm. You might need to take no does where you hunt. You, density might be ideal where you are. But again, it's a, it's a balance there between increasing forage and, and nutrition, decreasing density so that you, you meet in the middle. You've got the right number of deer for the food that's out there. Now you're maximizing all kinds of things. Fawn survival and health, body sizes of does and bucks, so more venison, healthier deer, mm -hmm. um, and of course, antler size in bucks. So for harvesting does and we are shooting quality deer, you know, mature deer, four and five years old, what can we do from a pressure management or a cover protection perspective, more specifically through the lens of someone that's hunting on a small parcel of property? You know, I'm from Oklahoma and that's, you know, in Northeast Oklahoma, these are usually 40 to 80 acre parts, you know, maybe not with that much bedding. What can we do from pressure management sanctuaries and cover to maybe increase the amount of quality deer that we're keeping on our property? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a critical factor for someone on a small property um, because we know from good science uh, that deer can pattern us real quickly if we are predictable. If we hunt the same areas over and over, deer get wind of that real quick and they learn to go around you. This has been seen many times in GPS collared studies where bucks are being tracked at the same time as hunters. And we see that they get onto us real quick. First, don't be predictable in your hunting patterns. If you've got small property, don't sit in that same stand day in, day out, all the time. Move around some, 
don't be predictable. Have some of the, the heavier cover, some, some, like you said, some, some dense cover areas that bucks can retreat into. Um, but remember too that, you know, you want some of those sanctuary areas that you don't hunt, but you have to hunt around those because if you create too much sanctuary, this is, you know, when you're a predictable hunter and you hunt the same stand over and over and over, bucks know and does know that's the danger area. Mm-hmm. But if the other, this other area over here, you're never hunting, that becomes a sanctuary, a de facto sanctuary because you're never in there. You need to know that. You need to know that that area is probably being used more by mature bucks because you're not ever in there. First of all, hunt it now and then, or at least if you want some sanctuary areas to be at, serve as an attraction site for deer when the rut is, when the pressure is on, hunt that area effectively. In other words, learn to hunt the access zones in and out of there as bucks come and go. So yeah, when it comes to small property, you've really got to be smart about your hunting. You know, uh, hunt the wind. Uh, be smart about that. Don't ever be drifting your scent into some of your prime uh, feeding and, and, and bedding areas. Uh, play the wind carefully and, and don't hunt when conditions are wrong. If you've got a, a, a great stand site, but on that morning or that evening, the, the wind is blowing straight into the food plot or straight into the, the heavy cover the buck is using, don't hunt that. Choose to go somewhere else. So have multiple stand options you can choose from based on the conditions and be smart about the wind, be smart about your pressure. Don't be predictable and don't reveal yourself constantly to the deer that use the property. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's great advice. Well, Lindsay, I really appreciate you jumping on with me. It's always a pleasure. Um, I love having you QDMA guys on there. You guys always shoot me straight and give me the, you know, the real rundown on what's going on. No problem at all. Thank you for having me back. Uh, thanks for having the other QDMA team members on, on a regular yeah. basis. We really appreciate that. And yeah, and, and uh, this, I think it's almost a year ago that we did the deer vision uh, yeah. podcast. So absolutely. this was nice to be back and chat with you again. And uh, yeah, look forward to, to more in the future. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you. Well, you have a good one. Take it easy. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.